Well, good morning, church. Man, so good to be with you guys this morning. If we haven't met, my name is Ben Clausen. I lead the college ministry here at Creekside, and it's just an honor every single time I get to be with you guys. So thanks for being here this morning. I'm excited to work through an amazing, amazing passage in God's Word. Today we're going to learn all about a baby, this amazing baby that came on a rescue mission to Earth 2,000 years ago. But before we talk about that baby, I, uh, as you guys are Hannah and I's church family, wanted to let you guys know about another baby that will be arriving soon. So we're pregnant. Yay. Thanks, guys. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, we are over the moon about baby Clausen, who will be coming in June, likely around June 18th. So I wanted to let you guys know we are really, really pumped, really pumped. Um, and I know what you're thinking. Have you told your other son, your Australian shepherd, Archie? And yes, we have, of course. And let's just say that some of us are more excited than others about the baby. <laughs> He's like, uh, really? Okay. Thought, thought, I was your, thought I was your kid. So yeah, we are really, <laughs> really pumped. <laughs> yeah. And Honestly, I could talk about this baby all day long. The amount that I've already learned about the amazing way that God weaves together uh, human lives in wombs is, is insane, um, is insane. So uh, yeah, I'm, we are just really, really, really excited. But like I said, topic for today, different baby, different baby. Uh, the, the baby born 2,000 years ago, not in a couple of months. So um, we're going to start by reading this passage in Philippians chapter 2, and then we're going to walk into our main point. So if you have a Bible, we're going to start in Philippians 2, verses 3 through 11. Verses 3 through 11. And I know you're going to like listen to some of this at first and be like, isn't it Christmas? This isn't a Christmas passage, but I assure you, the, oh, this is a Christmas passage. This is a dang good Christmas passage. So it's going to be a lot of fun, and we're going to start in Philippians verse, chapter 2, verses 3 through 7, where the Apostle Paul says to the Philippian church this, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men. All right, so the main point, the direction that we're going today, the one thing that I want every single person in here to take away is that humility is the Christmas spirit. Humility is is the Christmas spirit. Now, I know, I know it's cold outside, but I, I would love to get like a little bit of engagement going on this morning to, to unfreeze us in our seats. So let me just ask you, what is the Christmas spirit? Humility, exactly. What's the Christmas spirit? Yeah, you guys are brilliant. Good job. Humility is the Christmas spirit. So let me explain why this is our topic for today and why this topic is actually incredibly, incredibly countercultural. This topic is incredibly countercultural. This is a quote from a Bible scholar known as Gerald Hawthorne. He said this, before the New Testament era, the word humility had a negative connotation, a negative connotation. The adjective related to it was frequently employed to describe the mentality of a slave. It conveyed the ideas of being base, 
unfit, shabby, and of no account. Hence, humility could not have been regarded by the pagan as a virtue to be sought after. He's saying that in Bible times, humility was a vice, not a virtue. Humility was a vice, not a virtue. In fact, the Greek word, which we transliterate to get humility, is the Greek word. It's really long. I'm going to try and say it. It's, it's not going to be good, but I'm going to try it nonetheless. Tapinofro... Dang it. <laughs> Tapinofrusune. Yeah, huh? Yeah, you don't, don't check me on that one. Is, this is the word that we get humility, and it's actually not found in any other ancient literature other than the Bible. No one other than the biblical writers found humility to even be worth writing about. Why? Because in the first century, it was a dog-eat-dog world. It was a claw-your-way-to-the-top kind of culture. It was a me-centered culture, a me-centered culture. The center of the universe was the self in the first century. So what I want you to do is is make the little mental jump 2,000 years later. Here we are, 2022. Let me ask you this. Has, Has our culture outgrown that mindset? Have we outgrown the me-centered worldview? No, absolutely not. Here we are 2,000 years later, and the entire universe tells you that everything is about you. It says everything, the center of the universe is me. Life's all about my success, my needs, my wants, my preferences, my dreams. It's why America is characterized by radical individualism, right? It's why the sexual revolution has taken place, that sexuality has been switched from God's design to our desires. It's why, I don't know if you heard this statistic, but a couple of weeks ago, we had, despite inflation, the biggest Black Friday numbers ever. We bought more on Black Friday than ever. Consumerism is rampant. So many things happen because the world tells you that the center of the universe is the self, is me. But the question is, Is that me-centered worldview leading to fullness of life? Are we just thriving as a culture because we make the world all about ourselves, what we want? No. (laughs) It's almost almost like Jesus said that wouldn't work out. Uh, And it's it's true. It does not lead to fullness of life. But today, we're going to see what does. Today, we're going to see what does. We are going to see that humility is the Christmas spirit. And really, humility isn't just the Christmas spirit. Humility is the Christian spirit. <laughs> if our lives are meant, to be, are meant to be marked by what Christ was like, Christ was infinitely, unfathomably humble. So today, we're going to see the Apostle Paul give us two things. He's going to provide us an exhortation toward humility and then an example of humility, an exhortation and an example. I played golf in high school. Uh, I know you probably took me for a lineman, but uh, yeah, I know. Played golf in high school, shocker. And I, now that's not like a, like a flex, like if we played golf tomorrow, you wouldn't be like, you probably have done this before. Um, but regardless, I took a couple of lessons and I had this one coach that had a fancy video set up. So what he would do is he would video my swing and then he'd put me up next to a professional golfer. It looks something like this. Although both of those are professional golfers. But, so my swing did not look like that. Um, but basically he would show me my swing, show me Tiger Woods swing or something, and say, here are all the places you're wrong. Uh, Thanks. And then he would basically give me an exhortation. He would say, don't take the club back so far. Don't swing so much to the outside. Swing more inside. He would give me all of these exhortations. And then he would show me the swing of another. He would give me an example. 
So this is kind of exactly what the Apostle Paul is going to do today. He's going to say, this is what you need to do. Here's an exhortation. And then he's going to show us the ultimate example of what he's exhorting us toward. And ultimately, like I said, we're going to see that humility is the Christmas spirit. So let's start in Philippians chapter 2, verse 1. Chapter 2, verse 1. Paul says this, So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort in love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, what's he doing here? Uh, is, is there encouragement in Christ? Is there comfort from love? He's, he's basically making a hypothetical argument. He's, he wants the reader to assume like, well, duh, of course there's encur- encouragement in Christ. Of course there's participation in the Spirit. So basically he's saying, assuming that, There are these things, verse 2, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Complete my joy. What would complete your joy? What would bring you all the way to the fullness of joy? For Paul, it's that his people live in unity. It's that his people live in unity, that they are of one mind. So what he's going to say to the Philippian believers who are struggling with strife, who were not having one mind, applies just as beautifully and poignantly today, 2,000 years later, as he exhorts Grace Creekside to be unified, to complete his joy by having one mind. And how do we do it? How do we have one mind? How do we unify in this beautiful way that stands out so starkly from what the world has to offer? Look in verse 3, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. Now, he uses these two really interesting Greek words here. Um, The first, which we get rivalry or selfish ambition, is this Greek word, eretheia. Eretheia. Can you say that with me? Eretheia. Great job. You know Greek. Eretheia. That one was much easier than that first one. I don't even know why I tried to say that first one. Eretheia is often translated selfishness, selfish ambition, rivalry, or strife, and it denoted, it was used in other ancient literature to denote self-seeking pursuit of political office by unfair means. It describes the claw your way to the top kind of mindset. And then the second word that he uses is this Greek word, kenodoxion, kenodoxion. Can you say that with me? Kenodoxion, great work. Kenodoxion was translated vanity or conceit, exaggerated self-evaluation, and then the old English word, vainglory. I love that word. That word just is filled with so much meaning, vainglory. He's describing pride. He's describing pride. And, you know, these, when I first read these, I was like, okay, don't do anything from rivalry or conceit. That's easy. But as I, as I dwelled in the passage a little bit longer, I realized that he was actually saying something that was incredibly challenging to me. I, I sort of uh, not translated it, but paraphrased it into the, the BV, the Ben's version. So I want to read that to you and see if this version hits home a little bit more than, than those words do. He says this, quit thinking, or I said this, Paul didn't say this. Quit thinking you're so much better than everyone else. Don't shove your way to the front. Enough being so image conscious. I, when I read that, it hits me a little bit more because I'm, I'm challenged by all of these things. I don't know about you, but pride is a struggle that I have had to, to shove down to 
the floor so many times. It's one of those sins that for so many of us just creeps up, sneaks in out of nowhere and just gets us. And it's done that for me for so long. So what does Paul say is the antidote, the cure, the balm that heals the sickness of pride? He says this in the second half of verse three. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility... Count others more significant than yourselves. The antidote is humility. Humility is the Christmas spirit. Now, uh, what is humility? Humility, I don't know if you've been confused by hearing definitions of humility in the future, that's because, or in the past, that's because there are so many definitions of humility offered out there. A lot of people translate it as modesty or lowliness. The uh, Lexham Theological Workbook, which is kind of like a dictionary, defines it like this. A virtue that involves modest self-perception. It's the opposite of pride and arrogance. I think that's a great definition. Another, or other people define it as submission to God's will as modeled by Jesus. To say that, God, you're in control. I'm not. I'm going to submit to whatever you have for me, whatever you have for my life. I think those are both great definitions. But I think an even better definition comes directly from the passage. It comes right from what he just described. Where he said this, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his interests, but also to the interests of others. I think maybe the best definition is just prioritization of others, is elevating others up above yourself, is about becoming low that another might be lifted high, is about that John the Baptist famous line, I must decrease and he must increase. Less of me, more of Jesus more of others. I think that's ultimately what humility is about. And he says this, look not only to, the, to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. So what I want to do right now is pause and ask the question that this passage naturally begs, right? Which is, whose interests can you look to? <laughs> it's, a, it's a pretty straightforward uh, application that Paul provides us pretty immediately in this passage. He hits us right in the face. A lot of times in in sermons and at church, the application comes at the end, but today, I'm just trying to follow Paul's lead, and he puts it right in our faces right here, right now, and says, whose interests can you look to? So whose interests can you look to? It's a real question. This Christmas spirit, it can be so easy, it can be so easy to forget to look to the interests of others. So whose interests can you look to? I want to challenge all of us what this passage challenged me with. And it's to think about this in in two sort of spheres. The first sphere is within your own sphere, within your own like bubble or circle. Who within your own sphere can you look to their interests? Who can you serve within your own sphere? Maybe it's like, maybe for some of you, uh, you've walked into the season and it's, you've just honestly forgotten to look out for the needs or interests of your spouse lately. And it's time to just sit down and say, hey, I I just haven't asked you the question in a while. How can I serve you even better? How can I care for you in this season? Or maybe it's somebody in your family or a good friend who could like really, really need some help. We've got these friends who have a a young baby and he's in his second year of residency. So like mega, mega busy all the time with medical school and residency and all the things. And we've found that for Hannah and I, one of the kindest things that we can do is say, hey, can we just babysit for a night so that you guys can get a date night. (laughs) So maybe there's somebody like that or someone in your family whose interests you can look to. Who within your sphere can you look to their interests? 
And then second, outside of your sphere, outside of your sphere, whose interests outside of your sphere can you look to? Jesus was characterized by this, right? Jesus was always, constantly looking to the interests of those outside of his sphere. The uh, beggar on the street, the blind man in the line, the leper on the highway, the bleeding woman in the crowd, the Samaritan woman at the well. So I'm always challenged by by these moments with Jesus to think, who is just outside of my reach that it's really easy for me to just honestly ignore or gloss over and not share the love of Christ with, not look to their interests? Who's just outside of our sphere? I don't know for you if it's a neighbor, maybe, We have Christmas Eve service coming up this next week. Man, this is a prime time to invite people who don't know Jesus to come and experience the hope that we have found in him. Maybe you've got a neighbor that you see mowing their lawn every Sunday morning and you're like, you should should be at church right now. Maybe, Maybe the challenge is you should be inviting them to church right now. So maybe you have a neighbor like that. It's time to invite. Or maybe you've got somebody at your work who doesn't go to church, doesn't know Jesus, and it's time to invite them. I don't know who it is, what it is, but who outside of your sphere can you look to? Who can you elevate within and without, outside of your sphere? I um, was thinking about this passage this week and trying to just say like, God, would you just give me an opportunity (laughs) to, to elevate someone within or without my sphere, above myself to look to their interests. And uh, Thursday morning, um, I wake up early to come up here to church and work on this message, you know, that sort of thing. And uh, Thursday morning, if you remember, was the first morning that it was like pretty cold. That was the first morning that the cold front sort of blew in. And there was like a little bit of ice, like an almost freeze kind of thing. And we have a one-car garage and a one-car like driveway. So we do a lot of like switching the cars so the other person can leave. And Hannah's car was in the back. So I went and walked up to Hannah's car to move it out of the way to get my warm... Uh, luxurious car sitting in the, in the garage, and I walk out to Hannah's car, and the windshield's iced over, and I get in the car, it's frigid, and I notice that she has like a one-hundredth of a tank of gas, <laughs> and the low tire pressure light's on. And let me, let me be honest, first thought that came to my mind, <laughs> sorry for saying this, was, man, what a bad morning to be Hannah. <laughs> Uh, good husband alert. Um, yep. <laughs> so I'm like, geez, yikes. Uh, I'll at least give her a couple minutes of like the hood warming thing. Uh, so I go to move the car and, <laughs> and then I hear the gentle but very clear line, look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others, preacher. <laughs> no, the word preacher wasn't on there, but I, um, I immediately was like, yeah, <laughs> I just melted under that and was like, of course. And God and I did this like brief back and forth where I was like, well, can't I like look to her interests when I'm not in such a hurry? And uh, fortunately, slowly the spirit softened my heart and I took Hannah's car, I defrosted the windshield, I got gas, whatever. Why do I tell you that story? To highlight my personal holiness? Absolutely not. You heard my first reaction. It was not very like Christ. (laughs) But to show you what it showed me, that when we keep this at the front of our minds, God gives us opportunities. God gives us opportunities to practice this stuff. When we start to ask the question, whose interests can I look to? Man, God is faithful. How about theirs? How about theirs? Or theirs, or theirs, or theirs? 
So the question that I just want to leave us with, not leave us with, there's, there's more passage, I promise, is whose interests can you look to? Start to think about it now. Whose interests can I look to this Christmas season? That is the exhortation from the Apostle Paul. And now, what he's going to do is he's going to transition into the example. He's given us the exhortation toward humility, and now he's going to give us the example of humility. So keep reading with me, verses 5 through 7. He says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men. The ultimate example, the ultimate example of humility is the incarnation. The incarnation is the ultimate, the penultimate. There is nothing like the example that the incarnation provides us for humility, right? You see this? Why? For two reasons. The first reason is this, because Jesus was and is God. Jesus was and is God. This is a cornerstone, foundational belief at our church, that Jesus has always been God. He was and is God. Look at what the passage says. It says, Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. He was in the form of God. And now some people debate this word form, right? I don't know if you've heard this before, but some ancient church heresies said that Jesus wasn't God. Jesus was in the form of God, which isn't God. He's like a statue, like a statue of David is not actually David. He's like, a, he's like that. He's just a statue, just a form. And we believe that that is absolutely not true for a couple of reasons. The first is the immediate context. We see that immediately after he says this, he says, so he didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped, Right? Paul is assuming for the sake of argument that Jesus had equality with God. And then the second reason is if you look to a quick share of other verses, you, it becomes really, really clear that Jesus was and is God. John 1.1 1, 1 says that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word what? The Word was in the form of God, or the Word was godly, or the Word was godlike? No, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. I love Colossians 1 on this too. It says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And then look how he goes on. This next verse, For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on heaven or on earth, making peace by the blood of his cross. All the fullness of God dwelled within Jesus. And then I love Hebrews 1 on this. Hebrews 1.3 says that he is the radiance of the glory of God. I love when the writers of scriptures go, go poetic like this. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. It's really clear that Jesus was and is God. If you've been here, uh, even once this semester, we went through the book of Revelation. Uh, we finished Revelation last week. Wasn't that amazing? We did the entire book of Revelation this, this year. It was amazing. And we saw again and again and again that who is Jesus in Revelation? He's the slain and conquering lamb who's seated on the throne. He's God in flesh who died and rose again. There's no debating it. Jesus was and is God. He's the Alpha and the Omega, 
the creator of every single thing that we know and love, the one who knows your hairs on your head and who wrote out all the days of your life, who knows every single thing. He's omniscient. He's omnipresent. He's, he is every single thing that we could possibly imagine. And yet, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself and God became a baby. God became a baby. Why is the incarnation the ultimate example of humility? Because Jesus was and is God and Jesus became a baby. Jesus was and is God and Jesus became a baby. Isn't this remarkable? Have you, have you tried to sit with this? What it says here is that, he, is that he emptied himself. He emptied himself. He made himself nothing is another translation. There's some debate with this one too, right? It's, it's known as the kenosis debate because the Greek word here is translated kenosis. And people debate what exactly is happening here. Some people say that Jesus emptied himself of his status as God. He was no longer God. He was just man. But we believe this is absolutely not true. Why? Because Jesus claimed he was God, right? He said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. He said, I and the Father are one. He said, before Abraham was, I am. So we don't believe that Jesus was emptying himself of his status as God, so what was he emptying himself of? What was he emptying himself of? Well, I think it's, it's actually really simple. His emptying, his subtraction, actually involved adding. His subtraction involved addition because he added on a human body. And human bodies come with limits, right? I love what Chrysostom, another, Jake and I both quoted an ancient church father from the third century today. Super fun. Uh, Chrysostom said, we are soul and body, but he is God and soul and body. God and soul and body. He added on soul and body to his status as God because human bodies come with limits. What do we get? Tired and hungry. What did Jesus now get? Tired and hungry, right? Before that, he, was ne- he had never experienced the feeling of hunger down deep in his stomach, but then he came to earth as man. And what's John, or what does it tell us when Jesus is tempted in the wilderness? He was hungry. He felt the limitations of human flesh. John Walford, one of my, or one amazing Bible commentator said, in a word, he restricted the benefits of his attributes as they pertained to his walk on earth and voluntarily chose not to use his powers to lift himself above ordinary human limitations. That's kind of a, a lofty theological statement, right? But here's what it's saying to bring it to earth. Jesus was omnipresent meaning that he was everywhere. He could be anywhere he wanted, and he was everywhere. But when he was on earth, Jesus didn't use his omnipresence. He, he participated in the humble human act of travel by walking, right? He walked places. He could have just said, Nazareth, uh, Bethlehem, Jerusalem. He could have, he's omnipresent. He could have done whatever he wanted. But he chose to accept the limitations of a human body, which meant walking, <laughs> This is the amazing, beautiful reality of Jesus becoming God, God, or of Jesus becoming a baby. Jesus was God, and Jesus became a baby. It's a remarkable, remarkable thing. Um, I've been thinking a lot about babies lately. To, to be completely honest, you can guess why. I've got one on the way. And we have this, this really amazing app called What to Expect When You're Expecting. A lot of you probably used it out there. But this app shows a, like a few pictures along the way of what the baby looks like developmentally. It starts with the image that you're like, uh, is that, are you sure that's a baby? No, it doesn't really look like a baby. And then eventually, over time, it develops and 
gains the, it starts to gain things that look like fingers and toes and a spot for an eye. And then eventually at 12 weeks, you're like, oh my gosh, that's a, that's a baby. <laughs> that really looks like a baby. And over time, it just starts more and more to grow and look more and more and more like a human baby. And as I've been looking at these images, it struck me recently, God once looked like that. God once looked like that. The creator of the universe, a creation, the infinite, an infant, an embryo in the womb, Jesus, the creator of you and me. Every single one of us once looked like that. There is nothing like this. There is nothing like Jesus, God in flesh, becoming a baby. And what's amazing is, I mean, think about it like this. He could have chosen to be any baby, any baby at any time, born in any way into any family. Jesus was the only one of us that got to choose what family he was born into, what era he was born into, where he was born, and what did he choose? Well, let's just briefly read the Luke chapter 2 story of Jesus' birth and look at, the, look at what Jesus chose and just feel the humility seasoning this story it's everywhere. It says this, In those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. And all went out to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was at the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. Look at what Jesus chose here. Jesus was born into a humble family. Mary and Joseph were not of a lot of wealth. Joseph was a, a lower class carpenter. And with Mary, there was all kinds of controversy surrounding her, right? He was born into a humble family. He was born into a humble city. Bethlehem. Calvert would put Bethlehem to shame in size. Bethlehem is a tiny, tiny city on the map. You would almost just look over it. It's one of those that you drive through and didn't even notice you drove through a city. He was born into a humble space. We often miss the fact that a pregnant woman traveled through a city ready to have her baby, stopped at inn after inn and house after house, and people denied her a place to have her baby. So she had to have her baby literally in a manger, in a barn, that's remarkable. That's absolutely crazy. And Jesus was laid in a feeding trough, in a feeding trough. That's what a manger is. And then finally, Jesus was born into a humble body. He was born in a humble body. Not only was he born as a human baby, Isaiah chapter 53 actually tells us what kind of body that Jesus chose. It says this, for he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. Jesus got to choose whatever body he wanted and he chose a body with no beauty that we should desire him. All those movies where Jesus is like ripped and beautiful, it's inaccurate, it's inaccurate. He chose a humble body. He was born into a humble family in a humble city in a humble space and in a humble body do you see the great humility of the incarnation? The incarnation is the ultimate example of humility. Jesus was born a humble death, 
But the passage actually takes it a step further. Let's read verses 8 and 9 and see what these passages describe as what happens next. He humbled himself, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Let me take it a step further. The incarnation and the crucifixion are the ultimate examples of humility. The incarnation and the crucifixion are the ultimate examples of humility because that innocent baby born in an old rugged manger would grow up to be an innocent man who was nailed to an old rugged cross. A cross. A cross that was absolutely the symbol of shame, the symbol of all things evil in the world, all kinds of splinters creeping through his back, thorns drawing blood from his head, nails pierced through his hands. The God who made the man who nailed him to the cross. Why? Because Jesus would look through the centuries and look at you and me and say, I see you and I love so much this man or woman that I've made that I am willing to suffer everything, all measures of humiliation, birth to death. I'm willing to die a disgusting, painful death laid out for everyone to see on Golgotha so that three days later I can rise again in victory, conquer death, Beat death, saying, death, where is your sting? So that all of us could have faith in his death and resurrection and live with him in eternity. Because of Jesus' act of humility, we have life. We have life. Do you see the humility in the crucifixion and the incarnation that Jesus suffered for every single one of us? The incarnation and the crucifixion are the ultimate examples of humility. The ultimate examples of humility. So what I want to do today is just finish by reading verses 9 and 11 that show us the result of Jesus' humility. The result of Jesus' humility. What happens after that? Verse 9, therefore, because of Jesus' humble birth and death, therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Humility is the Christmas spirit, and what comes from humility? Exaltation. This is the countercultural way of Jesus that says, where do you find, the, what's culture say? Where do you find exaltation? Through raising yourself up. Where does Jesus say you find exaltation? Through humility. Through humility. The result of humility is exaltation. Jesus himself said it. Matthew 23, whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Peter said it. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another, for God opposes the proud. Do you want to be opposed to God? Quick way, be proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. The result of humility is exaltation. So I just want to close by asking, if humility is the Christmas spirit, how can we embody the true, real Christmas spirit exemplified in Jesus? I came across this quote that I love from John Piper. He said that what defines Jesus' humility is the fact that it is mainly a conscious act of putting himself in a lowly servant role for the good of others. A conscious act. What he's saying is that it wasn't just a mindset. Jesus' humility was both attitude and action. 
It was attitude and action. It was mindset and it was a lifestyle all at the same time. He both believed it and he lived it. So as we close today, I I just want to ask you, how can you embody the Christmas spirit? Whose interests can you look to? Whose interests can you look to? Because ultimately, Jesus paid it all and he provided the most beautiful example that we can possibly imagine. So I just want to close today by reading this quote from J.I. Packer in his book, Knowing God. He has this chapter on the incarnation, and it is just a masterpiece. So listen to these words from this chapter. We now see what it meant for the Son of God to empty himself and become poor. It meant a laying aside of glory, a voluntary restraint of power, an acceptance of hardship, isolation, ill treatment, malice, and misunderstanding. Finally, a death that involves such agony, spiritual even more than physical, that his mind nearly broke under the prospect of it. It meant love to the uttermost for unlovely human beings that they, through his poverty, might become rich. The Christmas message is that there is hope for a ruined humanity, hope of pardon, hope of peace with God, hope of glory, because at the Father's will, Jesus Christ became poor and was born in a stable so that 30 years later he might hang on a cross. It is the most wonderful message that the world has ever heard or will ever hear. Let's pray. Oh, Jesus, we thank you for that message. We thank you that it's true that you died on a cross that we might live that you ransomed us to yourself, that you provided for us the ultimate examples of humility. Jesus, I just pray that in this time, our prayer would be that you would allow us to embody the same. As we sing this beautiful song that, whose words are just perfectly fit to our prayer, Jesus, I pray that you would, that you would allow us to to finish strong here and walk out of this place enamored with the reality of who you are and what you've done, amazed at your first advent, anticipating your second advent, and in the meantime, ready to go wherever you lead us, ready to follow your example, ready to say, God, whatever you have for me, I want it, I'm ready, I trust you, God. Lead me, Jesus and make me more like you, Jesus. Pray all of this in your holy and majestic name, amen.